everybody, it's Michael here, and you're listening to the Good E-Reader Radio Show. Everybody, welcome back to the Goody Reader Radio Show. My name is Michael, and of course, I'm joined by Digital Book World's own Jeremy Greenfield. How are you? Good. How are you, Michael? I'm good. I'm basically recovering from server woes. I guess we had about three or four days of downtime as our hosting server cost fu- caught fire. So, basically, saving all data, getting back up to normal. So, life is again beautiful and rosy. Well, I it seems like it was a terrible problem and now you're out of it and technology and you can't you can't turn your back on it. It's true. It's it's a very precarious circumstance, but enough about me. Let's talk about Apple. They've been dominating the news headlines over the course of, well, I guess the last five or six years, but more noticeably recently with the whole Justice Department uh you know, there's a lot of news coming out of there. What do you know? So Apple, as we all know, lost its trial 
against the Department of Justice in the matter of ebook price fixing. Judge Denise Cope did not find Apple's arguments as convincing as the Justice Department's and ruled that Apple did indeed collude to fix the prices of ebooks uh, in uh, 2010 when it launched the iPad and brought along uh, five of the largest U.S. publishers uh, to its agency pricing scheme. So what happens next is the judge then decides on what's called a remedy, which is basically a punishment. Uh, Apple will probably be uh, made to pay a fine, uh, and there are other things that the Justice Department may uh, make Apple do. Now, Apple will, of course, appeal this, but until that happens, we, we get to see what the judge's punishment will be. So the news uh, over the past week has been the Department of Justice uh, filed uh, a brief on what it thinks the punishment should be. And the publishing world, and I think you know the investment world and the media world, was really shocked by what the Justice Department wants. So basically, the Justice Department wants uh, agency pricing for Apple to be eliminated as a possibility for five years. Uh, which is three more years than what the publishers had to face. Uh, and there's a really important wrinkle there, which I can get to in a second. They also want the Apple apps to be allowed to link to outside retail stores on the web, which Apple doesn't allow, and for Apple to not take a 30% commission on things sold through apps. And lastly, for Apple to abandon agency pricing for uh, iTunes, the App Store, and basically whenever it sells content. So this would really drastically change the iOS ecosystem, and it would make it possible, uh, in fact, financially uh, very attractive for Amazon and Kobo and Barnes & Noble to sell eBooks through their iOS apps, which is something that they don't do right now because of Apple's 30% commission. And it really just changes the game for Apple. I mean, the first three quarters, uh, content and, and it was about a $12 billion business uh, for Apple, so it's a very, very big business uh, for the company. Um, and we changed everything for ebooks, I think, because first of all, you know, agency pricing would go away for you know basically forever and eternity in the technology world. Um, and contracts, you know, new contracts that HarperCollins signed with Amazon and others over about a year ago now, when they when companies like that settled with the Department of Justice, um, now instead of running out in two years and you know HarperCollins then be able to go back to agency pricing if it wanted to, if it could negotiate that. Um, the clock would start again uh, as soon as the Apple uh, settlement was reached, and then it would go for another five years. So really, this could change everything if the judge decides to do what the DOJ wants. Now, publishers have filed their own brief basically calling the measure uh, ridiculous, and Apple filed its own uh, brief calling it a quote-unquote draconian. Um, so I don't know what's going to happen, what the judge will decide, but it could be another huge upheaval not only the ebook market, but also the, the content marketplace in the U.S. Well, I remember when iOS first came out, when you know the iPhone and iPad first came out, Amazon, everybody who had an ebook app actually sold ebooks directly through the app. It really wasn't until about August of about 2011 that. Apple mandated the policy that all in-app purchases have to be made through Apple and not third parties. And this was a bid to get that 30% of each sale. But what a lot of games and apps and you know ebook apps were doing is that they were circumventing Apple um, at the time by linking to like their own ecosystems directly within the app. And then you know the Apple mandated policy came through, and almost overnight, uh, Kobo, Amazon, Barnes Noble, and 
everybody else were not able to sell ebooks anymore because you figure Amazon sells a copious amount of ebooks. If Apple got 30% of every sale, that equates to, you know, literally billions of dollars in, in, in extra revenue that they would get. And since those two companies are really competing against each other, it's not in a Amazon's best interest to do that. I guess what Amazon has done lately um, to sort of circumvent Apple yet again is that it recently introduced a new feature in its iOS app called Samples. And what this does is you can actually browse Amazon's entire library of ebooks within your iOS or iPhone app. And then what you're doing is you could email yourself a link of the book. And then you could actually purchase the book, you know, by a one click on the link, and then it'll automatically be delivered to, you know, Amazon for iPad, Amazon for iPhone. And so Amazon's trying to circumvent Apple wherever it can. It'll be very interesting to see if this will happen, because realistically, you know, the, the two years turned into five years. That's debatable whether that'll happen. I think it, what more of a likelihood that will happen is that uh, DOJ will say, you know, Amazon and all these companies can link to their book books within, you know, their their singular apps. Out of the three different mandates or recommendations that the Justice Department made against Apple, what do you think are the more realistic things that will actually happen? I mean that's so tough. Um, I mean, really, it's a it's a it's a extreme intervention, in my opinion, by the government into an industry that it basically said before it didn't want to intervene in the in the normal day to day uh, operations of the industry. That it just wanted to sort of like correct the wrongs that had been done. So it's really really tough to say. I think the linking to outside stores for the app is is, is fairly likely um, compared to some of the others because uh, really it's about according to the Justice Department price comparison. Um, which which makes uh, sense for consumers. Um, the other remedies, I mean, it almost seems like the Justice Department wants to punish Apple indiscriminately, and and, and I and I hate to say this because I want to believe our justice system doesn't think like this, but help Amazon. Um, you know, Amazon has been very good for consumers in terms of lowering prices, making things available, and um, you know, I feel like the you know it's hard to to make this case, and there's no evidence of it, real evidence of it, but I feel like the Justice Department wants to support that. Um, and and I really can't go out and live and say that's the case, but I it, you know it feels that way sometimes by some of the things that it does. But you know what you're describing, what's going on between Apple and Amazon and all of these big tech players is this really high stakes game of of cat and mouse. And as an observer, it's really really exciting to watch. And I think if you're a publisher, you're you're just sort of trying to hold on to your lunch because of all the different ups and downs and lurches in the marketplace. Um, either way, there's going to be a lot for us to talk about in the coming days and weeks as, as the judge makes her decision, as, the, as Apple appeals and as that appeal happens. And, um, you know, who could have foreseen something like this years ago? I think the most unfair thing, though, is, is for the publishers that signed these deals that they, they bargained for with the Justice Department for uh, the two-year agency moratorium that will now turn into basically, a, for HarperCollins, a six-year moratorium should the clock start within the next couple of months. Um, you know, as a publisher, you thought you were signing on for one thing, but now, now the Justice Department is asking for something to be completely different. So I wonder, you know, what the publishers are planning for, and you know, their their CEOs and their their legal counsel must be feeling a little bit like they've been had. 
Yeah, no, you're exactly right because, you know, they it was pretty public in which each publisher settled. You know, they they settled for like a monetary amount and then they said, you know, for 2 years uh you cannot abide by the agency model and they all signed that in good faith. And now they want to overturn a settlement and instead of saying for two years, hey, it's five years. I really don't see the two years turning into five years because it was a part of the settlement and a lot of these publishers are already paying people out money, you know, as part of the settlement in the US. And so I really don't see that happening. Like, you know, from everything that I've looked into it, that is the one fact that yeah, I don't really see that happening. I see the damages that Apple has to pay fluctuating because they have not, you know, it's appealing. They have not signed anything. They have not paid anyone out yet. You know, that could change as well as ebooks, you know, sold within apps. But that opens up another can of worms because I could, you know, Apple makes a lot of money through in-app purchases, whether you're buying coins, whether you're buying uh, extra churns. Uh, you know, there's a lot of companies that uh, have that freemium model of encouraging customers to do microtransactions within games, which Apple gets a 30% piece of. If it comes down to it where, app, where books are exempt from this, I could really see all the game companies coming together and saying, well, hey, you know, if books are exempt from this 30% uh, royalty, why aren't our games exempt from this as well? And that is... Well, well that's, what, that's what the DOJ is asking for. The DOJ is asking for uh, that exemption for, um, for all in that... For, for, for basically the entire content store would, would be off-agency pricing, and that 30% would go away. It's not just ebooks; It's the iTunes store. It's the App Store. Um, so really, DOJ, it's, very, it's a very far-reaching request. You I know, mean, one thing we haven't talked about, though, is that one of the stipulations the DOJ wants is that they want, re- you know, the, the requirement removed from the remedy from before, the, the deals that they sign with the publishers, that Apple and Amazon and others have to make a profit on each publisher's book of business. So right now, uh, you know, there's regulatory folks and people within the companies watching how much discounting is being done at Barnes & Noble and, and Amazon, uh, to make sure that you know nobody is doing predatory pricing, nobody is undercutting the competition so much that 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 they can't compete. Um, and basically, what that if, if that goes away, what that means is that you know any of the companies could discount as much as they wanted. There'd be no penalty or punishment for doing so. Um, we could see really really low ebook prices depending on how aggressive Amazon and the others want to get about capturing market share. We Do you think that's well, that would actually happen, and what would happen if that did happen? It's kind of funny because we already saw that in the UK last week. Uh, Barnes & Noble did a three-day uh, summer reads program where it took a number of uh, seminal bestsellers. I know um, and, the Ma- and the Mountains Echoed, which I think is like number three on the New York Times bestseller list. It retails in the UK for about uh, $8.99, so £8.99. Pence. And Barnes & Noble discounted it to only 99 pence. And Amazon right away matched those prices. So you had like a series of bestseller books by higher profile authors go from like 10 pounds to like 99 pence over a three-day period. And so 
that's the type of pricing that you're talking about. And it's funny that that only happened in the UK where the Justice Department reach doesn't really go that far. But you would never see prices like that in the US because everybody would be up in arms about it. Yeah, you know, I think that it's... I wonder how upset the publishers are about this. It's a, it's a situation, again, where they, they didn't go to agency pricing at first, so they went hesitantly because they knew they would make less money in the short term, but they were trying to protect um, their authors and the value of their books and consumers' minds, and most importantly, you know, hardcover, their hardcover business, because, you know, hardcover books make $35, and then Amazon makes the ebook $9.99 and makes it pretty obvious that you should stop reading hardcover books and you should start reading ebooks if you can. Um, so I think that, that that is a big deal for publishers. But in the short term, if you have one of those books at 99 pence and they sell thousands and thousands of copies, you make a killing as a publisher because you're still getting paid whatever the retailer has agreed to pay you uh, for that book. You're just uh, not, not having it sold at that higher rate. Um, so you know, for the publisher that gets one of those deals, it's really, really good in the short term. But man, those, those publishing CEOs must be really nervous about the long-term implications. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, the way that I see it is that this is one judge's recommendation on three things that she, in her mind, that are a likelihood and possibility. I really don't think that, I mean, if if Apple negates that 30% royalty across everything, that's going to, like, destroy their business, and... Well, I mean, Apple makes a lot of money on other things, and the margins on its hardware are very, very good. But, of course, you know, it's printing money when you get 30% off of the sale of an app that you didn't put any money into creating. You just maintain the ecosystem. So, again, it's $12 billion or nearly $12 billion over the course of the first, you know, three months. I mean, they'd still make money on selling content, just not probably not as much. Um, and, you know, the company is 100 Flexibility, or it's almost a hundred billion dollar company. I actually can't remember what their their final year was last year, but um, their business will decrease. It won't crush the company, but it'll change everything. Yeah, it, it'll that. I think the in app purchases is the one thing that I'm very concerned about because. It, it would definitely have rever rever reverberating effects, not just in the publishing industry, but in more importantly, the game, uh, you know, an app industry, and that will dramatically shift. So it'll be very interesting to kind of track this. I mean, this has been dragging out for like a really long time. But do you think that the Justice Department is is going after Apple? because Apple has basically gone to war with, like, everybody suing everybody across the U.S. for a number of years? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Like, the better part of me, as I said before, wants to think that the Justice Department doesn't operate that way. Um, but if I have to be really, really cynical, I would say that, yes, that the Justice Department is going after Apple in total. You know, it's not... You know, Mike Shatkin wrote a blog post about, um, you know, the totality of relationships between companies like Apple and Google and publishers or whatever, and how, you know, even if they have little skirmishes, uh, so ta the, the totality of the relationship that matters. I mean, I think that this is maybe about the totality of the relationship between Apple and the government and Apple and consumers, that, you know, Apple is not a company that is super-duper consumer-friendly. 
Um, and even though Apple's brought wonderful things into the world and things everyone loves, and I think Justice may be responding to that. I mean, I, I hope that's not the case, but a part of me thinks that it might be. Same here. I think um, I almost think it's revenge that y- you would be hard pressed if you're just a casual uh, viewer of, of Apple or if you just had an iPhone, but you'd be hard-pressed not to pick up a local paper no matter where you lived in in the world and not read something about Apple suing so, uh, Samsung, trying to you know, say that you know, their three new tablets violate you know, X patent, X patent, and Y patent, and so they're trying to get all those off the shelves in Germany, in the UK, in the US. I mean, they're going against LG, they're going against Google, HTC. I mean, you know, Apple has been very predatory in the way that it's trying to protect its patents, but also they have no fear about taking people to court. And before this whole Justice Department uh, kerfuffle actually started with, with publishers and the whole agency pricing model, I mean, every single week you were seeing legal briefs about, you know, all these companies infringing, and I, I almost think that the Justice Department is come is laying down the hammer extra hard on Apple, just because Apple's been so enamored with just taking people to court, taking people's time. I mean, Denise Coates, who's the judge, I mean, she's been overseeing a number of Apple cases over over the years, and so. Do you think she's just basically fed up that you know I just want to get Apple out of court and stop suing people? You know, if, if that's the case, and I, I give up because, uh, you know, what, what a terrible reason for a judge to, to make a judgment. I, I, I just have to believe that. You know, even if the lawyers in the Justice Department, I mean, let's, let's look at the worst case scenario. They're ambitious with their careers and they're trying to make a statement and they want to, you know, punish the big bad apple and get back and get revenge or whatever. But I, I just can't believe, I don't want to live in a world where judges operate like that. I mean, I know we're all human, but I, I just don't want to believe that that's the case. So I'm going to go with no. I'm All right. Say no, Judge Code isn't doing that because I just don't want to believe that that's the case. Well, I, I I think I believe the opposite. I think that you know definitely the hammer's coming down because Apple's been so liberal about just suing everybody into oblivion, taking up courts time, taking up just news headlines, and I think just overall the public's just sick of Apple just you know, indiscriminately suing everybody. And I really think that this is why the hammer is coming down extra hard on them because it's just, you know, we've been reading about you and, and dealing with you guys for years and years and years. It's time to put a stop to it. And I, I think that that's really what it's all about. So let's let's put this on a shelf for now and come back to it maybe next week if there's any news. I think the other bit of big news is Amazon's Jeff Bezos has purchased the Washington Post which was basically a family-owned uh, newspaper for a number of years. It's more like most newspapers uh, in the States or even the world at large where you've seen cumulative declines in the subscription base. You've seen a little bit of numbers climbing higher with digital, but overall advertising revenues down, subscribers are down. And do you think that Jeff made this a good investment? I don't know whether it's a good investment or not. I mean, newspapers used to be complete cash cows, um, and that is just not the case anymore. Um, but it certainly is an interesting purchase for Bezos, and he's, he's clearly become a, a massive media mogul. I mean, Amazon is 
selling all kinds of content, creating all kinds of content, controlling through the cloud all kinds of content. Um, it's the conduit through which people read books, read magazines, read newspapers, um, and it's becoming more so all the time, especially as the Kindle Fire gains market share. Uh, the Washington Post is, is, is a big uh, megaphone, though, especially in D.C. It's something that politicians all read, and it's one of the few really respectable, high-quality newspapers left in the U.S. Uh, it used to be that you could find good journalism in, in even mid-sized cities all over the country now, and that's, that's getting harder and harder to do, and WashPro is one of the last bastions of that. So I think that you know people that are really worried about the state of journalism and worried about people, you know, like Rupert Murdoch taking over the Wall Street Journal and, um, you know, what's going to become the New York Times with, with Carlos Lind has made some significant investments there. I think people like that, journalism people, probably very worried by this. Um, at the same time, you know, I really admire what uh, Bezos has done uh, with Amazon. He's built an incredibly dynamic and powerful company. He's done it um, in a relatively short period of time, and it's a company, it's a household name, it's a company that people generally love and, and provides a great service for a lot of people, regardless of what you might think if you're in the industry, in the publishing industry. So I am very curious to see what happens at Washpo. I think the most interesting thing I read was maybe the ebook business and Amazon's success in the ebook business provides a blueprint for what Bezos might want to do with Washpo. And one of the interesting things about this article I read, I think it was in Business Week was that they look at the Amazon's ebook pricing as high, high pricing, as success, at getting people to pay for digital content. Because as you and I both know, most, the vast majority of digital content is free, and people come to expect that digital content would be free. I mean, this is something you never expected in the analog world of 20 years ago. Um, but now you expect never to pay for content for the most part. So maybe he'll help uh, the Washington Post monetize itself in a, in a new and different way uh, than it could before. Yeah, I mean, I, I talk to a lot of uh, newspaper companies uh, and even aggregator services like uh, Flipboard, uh, Press Reader, and stuff like that that uh, do a lot of stuff. From what I understand is that people are often getting double billed. So if you subscribe to the print edition, it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll get the digital edition for free. So say you have a Kindle Fire and you download the Washington Post app. Just because you subscribe to the physical paper doesn't automatically give you subscription access to their app. You actually have to take out a different subscription model. And that's applicable to most newspapers out there. there there's very few that bundle uh, a normal subscription with a digital subscription. And so I think that that's where you have the, the burgeoning gulf where people are making the one or the other decision. I'm either going to subscribe to print or if I'm, I'm going to subscribe to digital, but it doesn't make sense to take out two different subscriptions for both. And it'll be very interesting to see. I mean, I think it was very clear that this was not an Amazon acquisition. This was a Jeff acquisition. Um, recently, I think uh, earlier this year, he had invested $5 million into an online uh, company, Business Insider, which uh, mm -hmm. some people have heard of. It kind of flies under the radar. It's not the most uh, seminal of, of um, you know news reporting companies, but this was sort of his foray into personal investments into news. I guess the big question is, do you think in the end that this is 
an acquisition or a pet project for uh, Jeff, or do you think that this will inevitably come down to being Amazon? I don't think it's a pet project, and, and I, I don't think it'll be Amazon either. Um, I think that it's, if I had to guess, if I had to totally speculate, I would say that, you know, Bezos is obviously very interested in content and information. Um, you know, regardless of what you might say in publishing, he clearly loves books. Um, and he's also interested in changing industries that you know, are ripe for disintermediation. Um, the newspaper industry clearly isn't what it was uh, years ago. Things are, are still very, very much in flux. Um, as much as they change at a fast rate, it seems like that, that rate of change continues to increase. And I think Bezos sees an opportunity to uh, do something with that. So I don't think it's, it's necessarily just a pet project or something that you can sort of walk into a fancy party and say, I own the Washington Post. But I also don't think that it's going to be absorbed into Amazon uh, either. Um, so I'm very curious to see what kind of experimentation. I mean, he, he did talk about in his letter to the, the company that, um, you know, it was going to be about experimentation. And I'm, and I'm really curious to see what that will entail. Yeah, I mean, that email that he sent out for for anybody that's not familiar with it, it's basically saying that the company is going to change and there's going to be a lot of new initiatives that are going to be launched, you know, at an indeterminate time in the future, but not so far in the future. I, I kind of think that Jeff is trying to transcend being just the CEO of Amazon and trying to reposition himself into being a media mogul and i think that this is really his uh if this plays outright it's almost like his uh, coming out party where you know business's name will be synonymous with other high profile people in the industry like a, a rupert murdoch you know where he's in charge mm -hmm. of basically an empire and always makes strategic acquisitions to enhance that empire when it comes down to it you know, Jeff Bezos is Amazon, and, and that's, the, that's basically hand-in-hand. Hand. If he kind of can transcend Amazon and start, you know, showing that he could manage other companies and bring them from the brink to high profitability, knowing what he knows, you know, I think that that, I think that, that may be what it's all about in the end. I think that you might be right, and I'm really just curious to see what happens. I mean, as a journalism person myself, you know, I'm I'm thinking, you know, is the Washington Post going to be a really great place to work in the next couple of years, or is it going to be a really bad place to work? You know, I'm not actually sure about this, and I'm sure this is something we can look up, but, you know, when Murdoch took over the Wall Street Journal, uh, there's a gentleman named Marcus Broccoli who was running things on the editorial side, and, you know, if you read the, the big articles about it in The New Yorker, and I think there is either a book out or a book coming out soon, um, about it, you know, he ended up leaving for the Washington Post. Um, I think he was, he was pushed out uh, to some extent. Um, I, I don't know if he's still running the Washington Post right now, but that would be a very interesting um, uh, symmetry there. Yeah, to, to like leave a place because it was acquired and he doesn't like the way things are run. It's like, let's go to a stable newspaper where things have been fairly copacetic for, you know, decades. You know, this is the this is the new, the Washington Post. I mean, broke the Watergate. I mean, you know, they they have high journalistic integrity and to go from there and, you know, all of a sudden, oh yeah, this company has been acquired. Everything is in flux. I mean, his, he must be losing his hair at this point. So um, I'm looking at Broccoli right now, and it looks like he left the post. 
Um, although he has commented on, uh, it looks like he left the post in November of last year, so I'm, I'm, I'm mistaken, but, but he has obviously commented uh, in New York Magazine uh, about, the, about the acquisition, and he called it brave and unselfish yeah. um, by, by Bezos. And um, so you wonder, it looks like Broccoli, from whatever, wherever he's sitting, probably thinks that Bezos is trying to you know, support or reinvest or reinvigorate an institution that, you know, to be quite frank, is not exactly thriving. All right, let's talk about a few smaller things that have uh, made news in the uh, the last week. What do you think about the whole, uh, pro, you know, uh, Barack Obama doing a Q and A with uh, Bloom on uh, the Kindle singles? Uh, you know, I thought that was uh, very cool of the president to do that, and I didn't read the Q and A, but you know, obviously the president is not someone who we don't know a lot about not someone who has unanswered questions, um, that he, there is an opportunity to talk to him. So I didn't really see a reason for it, but I did think it was very cool of the president to sort of be part of this new medium. And perhaps, you know, this will help Kindle singles uh, or short-form content rise to higher prominence. Um, what I thought was really interesting was the decision to speak in front of the uh, Amazon uh, the, the Amazon warehouse in Chattanooga um, before the interview uh, and tout Amazon as a job creator, which is true. Amazon, for a company of its size, creates a tremendous amount of jobs. And I wouldn't be surprised if Amazon created more jobs than any large company, or really any company in the U.S. over over the past two or three years. I mean, it would really shock me if there was another company that, that did more hiring than Amazon. Uh, at the same time, you know, I've studied uh, uh, labor uh, economics, and I can tell you that there that large companies like Amazon are the, the smallest segment of job creators. Um, new businesses, most of them are very small businesses are the main job creators. Uh, Amazon is not one of those businesses. Businesses with over 5,000 employees just, just don't create a lot of jobs. They create less than 1% of all the jobs that are created in the U.S. every year. So it kind of is misguided, you know, to say, hey, other companies should be like Amazon because, you know, they're really not companies that like they're out there. I mean, if you really wanted to support jobs, you should have probably done a speech in front of a bank or in front of a venture capital firm because those are the guys that make investments that create these small businesses and these new businesses that create jobs. Um, but you know, it makes you wonder, you know, does, how much does the government love Amazon? It's a little simplistic to look at it that way, but, um, you know, that's, uh, that's how a lot of people are looking at it. In other news, maybe you heard about this that, you know, Sony as a, an ebook selling company has, they're usually behind everybody else, you know, in terms of their technology, in terms of uh, their presentation, um, you know, things that they do in order to be competitive. Uh, when you think of the top ebook sellers, Sony is often very low in the list. Uh, they just announced that they're going to start accepting ebook pre-orders, and uh, yes, they just started finally. accepting them now. Do you think? They were late to the party on this. Yeah, of course they were late to the party on this. I, you know what? I, I'm embarrassed to admit this. But I didn't know that Sony did not accept pre-orders. I, I assumed, like every other uh, ebook retailer, that Sony did accept pre-orders. Um, and then that was the news that came out this week. And we didn't actually even pick it up on our newswire for a number of reasons. But I was really shocked to see that 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 was the case. Uh, the, you you were probably aware because you're very up on these technologies. So what did you think about the announcement? You know, honestly, it's the same thing. I mean, why didn't they do this years ago? I mean, you know, pre-ordering books, 
it's kind of funny because we actually ran a few polls and um, before Sony actually announced this, I was actually talking about on uh, you know Twitter and Facebook and all those various social media platforms on, you know, do you pre-order books, uh, digital books? And a lot of people said no, you know, and this almost comes into a greater issue that as the final segment of the show, I'd like to talk to you about because I don't, I don't think it's something that either of us have ever talked to each other about before. And it's something online. A lot of people don't talk about either. What's the incentive of pre-ordering an ebook? I mean, if I pre-order a Blu-ray movie, uh, I could often get some bonus content, you know, either a supplementary, uh, you know, Blu-ray, some special features. Even if I go and buy a movie ticket now, instead of just paying the, you know, $15 for the movie ticket, I could pay $50 and get the Blu-ray weeks in advance before it hits the stores. Um, even like, you know, there's, there's a lot of things. If you pre-order video games, you'll get... Um, you know, bonus levels, you may get some multiplayer levels, you may get some in-game armor and whatnot. Where's the incentive to pre-order an ebook? There, There's no incentive. You pre-order an With ebook? Triage, I guess. I mean... Triage, you know, it's like either you think about it, now you can buy it, and it'll just show up on your e-reader. A few months later, you don't have to think about it, you don't have to remember. I mean, it's a convenience thing, I would say. I don't think there's huge incentive, um, but, but certainly it's, it's a little convenient. But, I mean, there's, do you think, I would be very interested to find out the pre-order statistics from, say, like an Amazon, a Kobo, a Sony, Barnes & Noble, and whatever on, or even Apple. I mean, how many pre-order sales do they actually make, you know, because when it comes to digital content, it's, you know, from there to here, there, there's really no in-betweens. It's not like if you pre-order an ebook that you get it a day early, a week early. There, you basically get it at the same time it's commercially available, which negates the whole thing of a pre-order. I mean, there's no benefits. You don't get it any earlier. What's, what is the point of pre-ordering an ebook? I see no point. Well, maybe this, maybe this, maybe because Sony made this big announcement all of these publishers will say, well, geez, if Sony is going to allow pre-orders, we should add some benefit to it, and maybe they'll start giving away bonus content for pre-ordered e-books. I don't see that happening at all. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen either. <laughs> um, but, I mean, I must say the one kind of cool thing that Sony has done, I think just this year, is do a lot of um, you know, e-book discovery gimmicks. You know, they, they've done, I think, a, a new emotional matchup where, you know, yep. if you're feeling uh, nostalgic, you click on it, it'll suggest a book. Or, uh, you know, they have, uh, you know, basically all these, like, gimmicks that really don't do too much, but they're doing things that no one else is. Do you think that this is helping them, or do you think that people don't even care? Uh, I think people don't even care uh, because, you know, I think, the, first of all, people don't have a problem with ebook discovery. Um, if, I think if for readers that already have the Sony reader that already do engage with Sony on ebooks, that maybe for them it's a nice little bonus. Um, but I think that probably consumers that are deciding between ebook readers or that might think to themselves, oh, I really don't want to have a Kindle anymore for some reason, I want to go somewhere else. I don't know if this is really moving the needle for them. I mean, I could be wrong, but. It just doesn't seem like anything. Now, if they came up with a discovery scheme 
that was really significant, that really changed the game for book discovery, that really made it so like every time you logged onto your eater, you're actually walking into a bookstore somehow. Um, I think that might have an impact, but I think I don't think any of the things they've done this year are going to have a huge impact. Yeah, same. I mean, uh, I talked to some reps from there, and you know, I get the press releases just like probably most people in the digital publishing sphere, and it just doesn't seem like they announce something and then you never hear about it again. And yeah, I think it's the things that you end up hearing about again and again and again that, for one, gain traction and two people are actually talking about it. I really don't think anybody is talking about Sony as being viable in the ebook space at all. I mean, all these little gimmicks are cool and it makes for like a good short-term press story, but the long-term is that yeah, nobody really cares. Unfortunately, that's the case. All right, so we're about to wrap up. Uh Jeremy, what do you have going on these days? Well, we have our Marketing and Publishing Services Conference and Expo coming up in September in New York. I believe that's September 26th. Um, really good program. Uh, a gentleman named Peter McCarthy, who has had senior-level marketing positions at many major uh, trade publishing houses, is, has put together a dynamite uh, one-day end-to-end show to give you, uh, your, if you're an author or a publisher or, or a marketer or a PR person, you know, an end-to-end marketing plan for for books in the digital age, uh, you know, things are so different now than what they used to be. Uh, and, you know, having some strategy behind what you do marketing that's different than the strategy you're using 10 years ago is just so important. I mean, it's really, it's not even advanced. It's really something you need to just sit at the table. And um, so that's going to be fantastic. And then, you know, publishing services is another big deal for publishers right now. They uh, have a lot of decisions to make when it comes to which services to use. And uh, and what to use them for, and, and they need to get more efficient, and they need to get uh, you know um, better at what they're doing to save more money and make more money. And these decisions are really really hard. It can take a long time to figure out what you need to do, and by the time you figure it out, uh, it could be that a year has passed, and now everything's different again. So going to conferences like these, where you learn the cutting edge, really just in one day, and you really understand uh, what you need to do and meet the people that can help you do it, uh, it's so so important. So. I'm sure we'll see a lot of people there uh, in New York on September 26th at the Marketing and Publishing Services Conference in Expo. So where can people sign up? Where can people learn more about it? Uh, you can just go to digitalbookworld.com, and we have some ads on our site that link to the conference site, or you can go directly to marketing.digitalbookworld.com, and that links directly to the conference site. It'll give you all the information uh, you need. And also, you know, Peter McCarthy is now blogging at Digital Book World, sharing some of his um, fantastic marketing intel. So be sure to check that out as well. Okay. Um, the only plug I have is a free contest for everybody. Uh, we're giving away uh, a Cybook Odyssey HD with Frontlight. Basically about six months old. It's uh, the latest e-reader from Bokeen, which is a French company. And uh, so we're giving that away in a case. Um, the contest details are on our main page, but suffice to say, what is your favorite movie based on a book? And once it gets to 100 comments, which I think we have about 40 or 50 now uh, in just 24 hours, we're going to be giving this away plus a shiny red case. So this is, again, a free contest. We do these once a month or so. So uh, we're interested to see like what people are saying uh, in terms of, you know, what do you like? And it just seems overwhelmingly right now, uh, people love The Princess Bride. 
people love Fight Club and people love Harry Potter and these big epic series like Lord of the Rings. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking about getting a new device for the first time or even thinking about, uh, you know, sounding off on what your favorite movie based on a book is, feel free to visit our website, goodyreader.com slash blog, and check that out, as well as we've been doing a series of audiobook features uh, the last two weeks. We're looking at various European markets as well as North America and breaking it down on exactly how much the audiobook industry is worth, say, in Germany, in the UK, in the US, and as well as what are the major players. Um, Audiobooks fairly often are not really talked about. You hear a lot about uh, digital newspapers, ebooks, uh, magazines, um, but you don't really hear a lot about audiobooks. So we're kind of breaking it down on um, breaking down the walls of how it used to be just with CDs and mail orders and you used to spend about $100 to total digital distribution. Prices have dramatically uh, decreased and we talked to some of the players in the industry on if you're an indie author, what are your options to get an ebook done uh, or to get an audiobook done and exactly you know the success stories behind that so we've been covering that extensively in the last few weeks and we're not slowing down by any means so check it out and uh, you've been listening to the goody reader radio show jeremy greenfield of digital book world and i am michael kozlowski of goody reader everybody take care